This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. Have you ever bought an original piece of art? Yes. Oh, well, there are a lot of artists looking for buyers, and this hasn't changed over time. Carolyn Marley knows a lot about art, artists, what and how they paint. Welcome back. Thanks, Jen. Now, Carolyn, you've got Ralph Ortred. He's your artist. So when have you set this book? It's set in uh, the military campaign of 1809 when the British went to Spain and Portugal to help them try and remove Napoleon from their country. Wow. We start the book in London. That's where Ralph lives. There's, of course, no decent water, so they're constantly drinking wine, porter and ale. He has an easy manner which helps him with the type of art that he does. What does he paint? Well, he's a portrait painter, and when he was at the Royal Academy, a place that he had to leave due to a disagreement about the payment of fees, Mm. he uh, decided to take up portrait painting because there was a huge demand for it, and he thought he could make a living at it. Look, he's really not very good at balancing his debts. He uh, And, of course, he, he's in quite a bit of debt with the, the art gallery, the, all the, wherever he buys his paints from, his clothing makers. And there is Lucinda. Ah, the lovely Lucinda, his beautiful mistress with whom he's been deeply in love and about to propose to this last five years. But he can't afford it, so <laughs> he's offered a commission, a quite a substantial commission. By whom? Well, by the horse guards, which is one of those enigmatic expressions, but essentially by the army. Yeah. And... Uh, <clears throat> the commission is to paint a lot of generals... And uh, that's partly because the generals had a tendency to sort of not necessarily come back from campaigns. (laughs) This is why the book is called Artist on Campaign. Mm -hmm. So you mention which war he's off to, Mm -hmm. but in the acknowledgement you thank the officers and gentlemen of the Napoleon series. Who are they? Uh, They're a lovely bunch of people. There are, of course, an enormous number of enthusiasts about the Napoleonic Wars internationally. Um, And um, the Napoleon series is the oldest, longest-running internet forum, and it uh, publishes articles and so on, um, original documents, source documents. There's a lot of people on it who are... um, retired or even serving army officers, history teachers. They're they're a terrific bunch. I learned an enormous amount from them, anything that you ever want to know. (laughs) Because this is what's happening. The uh, the English army are over in Portugal Mm. to chase the French out of Portugal and out of Spain. And, of of course, it's Napoleon that they're after. So what, what I found was the richness in your knowledge of all of these little battles that were going on all through those stages. Our artist, Ralph, was given a list of generals from the War Office and he was told to paint them in order. <laughs> yes, seniority was how you advanced and uh, they were generals. They had a very pronounced sense of honour and of their status and so on and uh, they did get, they'd been known to resign over a slight, like being passed over for a plum job. 
Um, yes. Well, what I didn't realise very much was that you could buy your way into the army up to a certain level. Yes, that was the normal method at the time. It was called purchasing a commission. And uh, uh, it didn't actually seem to work any worse than anything else because, yes, you, you bought... It was something that you did with the younger sons of the gentry and the aristocracy and so on. Uh, they, you bought, you'd buy them a commission in the army and in peacetime it, it gave them something to do, it gave them a job, it gave them a position in society. I suppose it got them out of the house. Um, and those who were no good tended to get passed over a bit or moved sideways into... Uh, you know, somewhere where they couldn't do any harm. Well, in London, he was he was also uh, uh, painting the portrait of Captain Jackson, and he got on very well with Captain Jackson. And Captain Jack- Jackson was with the artillery. He was a well organised fighting man who expected promotion, but the promotion had gone, gone to Captain Hammond, who was very charming, very handsome, but without leadership qualities. And there's a rivalry that goes on with these three, three right through the book. Ralph had a limited time to paint the generals, and sometimes there was, there was time when the army moved on. But they didn't go anywhere fast, did they? Just... If you can yes. briefly, <laughs> tell us how an army moves. Well, of course, it was a bit like the weakest link in the chain. The army could only move at the pace of the slowest part of it, which was the ox carts carrying the dragging their impedimenta with them, because the army took its house with it mm. when it moved. So not just people galloping about on horses and so on and the cavalry and so on. There were the Royal Horse Artillery, of which Captain Jackson is an ornament. and um, But there was also the paymasters, the engineers, the sappers and, of course, an army on campaign at that time uh, also had, as I think I might have mentioned somewhere, the camp followers, the women who are enamoured of a particular soldier and those merely enamoured of the army, as well as the, the official wives, their children, their servants, the boys who cut the grass for the mules and their dependents. It just went on and on and on. <laughs> so they, they a 10-mile march, yes, was probably a march. But the generals were not keen to make time to do a sitting for Ralph, so he had to use his charm and inside influence. Now, mm. this charm is also used on some of the local ladies. And a term of the time comes up, a night with Venice, <coughs> Venus, a lifetime with Mercury. What's that? <laughs> yes, that's a, that is a bona fide expression of the period. Well, of course, a beautiful young woman was Venus. Yes. Um, these men were all classically educated, at least to some degree. Um, the treatment for syphilis at the time was the mercury treatment, which we've since discovered didn't actually cure it, and it was very traumatic. So that was a joke of the time, yes. Well, Ralph is constantly short of money, as were all of those in the army. Everything was provided, you know, food and accommodation, or if you can call a barn accommodation, except their salary. And this was really something that happened at this time with the wages, the money. 
Well, absolutely, because among the people in that enormous train following the army round was the paymaster's department with its heavily guarded chests of specie or actual coinage because the Portuguese and so on would not accept paper money, in other words, bills on their banks. So they had to take this money to other places to ch- to ch- to change it mm. back into cool. coinage so that to pay. Oh, phenomenal. And that was true. Uh, absolute, absolutely true. The paymaster carried chests of money around. On Sir John Moore's retreat to Corona, uh, when things got very, very bad, they had to throw the chests of Spanish silver dollars over the cliff. Oh, jeez. So that the French who were following them didn't get them. Well, to get money, Jackson and Ralph organised the Grand Royal Horse Artillery Race with rival Captain Hammond having the best horse. Well, one of the reasons they also needed money was to buy the personal possessions of army friends killed in action. And this was probably true too. Uh, Yes, after every battle... Um, where a lot of your friends and associates would have been killed, their their regiment or their company would hold an auction of their effects and then they would send the money back to their wives, dependents, family and so forth. Mm. It was, yes, sad, but yes... Well, look, we're talking about sad, but there's a lot of humour in this because Ralph had many adventures, some through his own stupidity. He was taken prisoner by the French at one stage and jailed with a tattooist. And the tattooist said, oh, well, I'm OK. They're not going to do anything to me, which really surprised me. <laughs> well, as he said, I think, to, to Ralph Monbrave, um, you, they may shoot me. No, they cannot spare me. I am the regimental tattooist. <laughs> French, Who knew that? <laughs> French soldiers, uh, unlike the English, had uh, earrings, wore earrings, which at that time was much more ordinary. And uh, they also had regimental tattoos and oh, yeah. uh, of their yeah. regimental crest or whatever, rather like the, we're used to the idea of sailors having tattoos. Mm. Um, yes, yeah, so since he was a regimental tattooist... Well... Tattooing leads us back to the artwork. And what I really loved was the artistic description of the portraits matching the personalities of the generals. Ralph's ideas of the placement of this big artwork he was going to paint, Mm. does it exist? Um, Only in my imagination, I'm afraid. Although there are works uh, along those lines, of course, the big group portrait... Yeah. And the, there is a group portrait, I think, of Wellington conferring with his generals. Um, so that type of thing was very much the official yeah. portrait, which is something we don't have much these well, days. That portrait, that painting may not be true, but his desire to get paintings back to Mrs uh, Humphrey. Now, you, you said that she's Queen of London's print sellers and patroness of the arts. It was like the illustrated news of the time. And that is true. She existed. Oh, absolutely. Hannah Humphrey was the doyen. She had a relationship with one of the other, um, one of the great caricaturists of the age, Gilray, who was a lodger in the house. And um, so when Ralph goes to see his prints, um, he rearranges them so that they're in front of Gilray, so that to attract <laughs> the attention of the buyer. But, but yes, um, engravings of popular subjects were enormously popular, and it was a way that people could uh, have an image 
of, uh, well, before photographic reproduction, like we can get a poster of Monet's Water Lilies. Right. Well, I thoroughly enjoyed this this <clears throat> introduction mm. back again into the art mm. of the Georgian time, as um, Carolyn's mm. last book, The Competition, was. So we have artist on campaign. How would a destitute but charming and talented artist cope with painted painting portraits in a war situation. Carolyn Marley has written with knowledge and humour in Artist on com- Campaign. Well, that's, that's fascinating in terms of the images and the, and the period uh, in which the history is set and the images chosen to represent that because some of what I'm looking at looks at another representation or images to represent a particular time. Speaking of which, the time is 1956, which is the historical period I'm looking at, and it was the year Melbourne hosted the Olympics. But just how uh, significant was that year in shaping Melbourne, and for that matter, Australia? Now, Nick Richardson explores that concept in his work, appropriately entitled 1956. So, Nick... Welcome back to 3CR. Thanks very much for having me back. Well, it's a pleasure. Now, look, this notion of the Olympics is in many ways a conceit because what surrounds that moment in time speaks to Australia's development and place in the world. So what made you choose 1956? It's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because there there is this hardy view that the 1950s in particular are this kind of sleepy decade, especially in Australia, uh, with Prime Minister Robert Menzies presiding over us as we all kind of walked with our eyes half closed into the dazzling light of the 1960s. Well, uh, and in fact, Paul Keating, the former Prime Minister, said, you know, it was the decade that we suffered from a near-lethal dose of fogeyism. Um, so there, for instantly, for me, it was something like, was it exactly like that? Was there something else going on here that we might have missed? And so I started to peel back some layers, and sure enough, 56, which had kind of been given a kind of a sense of a benchmark because of the Olympics, but also the arrival of TV, suddenly once I started to go a bit deeper than that, there were all these other things that seemed to rush out of the bottle. Well, we're going to look at some of those other things. I mean, just the way you described uh, Melbourne uh, at that time, or Australia, a closer look revealed a city aspiring to be cosmopolitan, but not quite reaching the mark. (laughs) A feeling of dryness, futility, loneliness pervaded us all, he wrote. The future was never more blurred, a kind of barrier between us and the world of Australia, a strange, hostile world, whereas future proved we were the underdogs. So Australia really was a a backwater in the 50s. Yes, it was. There was a sense that we weren't quite sure where we were, We didn't have a great sense of the rest of the world. And bear in mind, there was still this great vulnerability and uh, pain and trauma that had been the carryover from the end of World War II. So there was a a desire for something new, but perhaps not the realisation of how to achieve that. Hmm. Well, I want to start in a most unusual place really given the momentous events that were occurring Mm -hmm. around that something a little more domestic ray lawler summer of the 17th doll Mm. and we can move on to salinger's catcher in the rye the significance of the doll as it's coming well the doll was extraordinarily significant and the reason why is in a literal and metaphorical sense it was the play that australia discovered its voice 
And I think the the classic instance of this is up until that time, a lot of Australian um, stage work was uh, inhabited by um, people who adopted English accents mm. and indeed the, the kind of the theatrical canon was very much derived from the UK tradition. Not only was it Shakespeare, but we had visitors like uh, Sybil Thorndike, Ralph Richardson, Laurence Olivier, who were coming over to perform. What marked the doll apart was not only was it a play about Australians and Australians at that time, but the director, who was an Englishman, John Sumner, actually had to drill the Australian actors into adopting the, the Australian way Excellent. of speaking, which was it, it seems kind of hard to believe these days that they had to be encouraged to do it. But Sumner's advice to the actors, which included Lawler, was remember that a cane cutter sounds different to someone who lives in suburban Melbourne. Think about what the differences are between those two and let's try and capture it. But that notion then of an Australian voice speaks to the identity that was emerging or developing at the time. Absolutely true. And one of the interesting things was in the opening night in Melbourne when Lawler's um, script had captured the the Australian vernacular, the crowds laughed and loved it and responded in kind. So that gives you a fair indication that at that moment we were receptive to the idea and the play, as we know now, became a runaway success. But at the same time, where literature was concerned, you had the comptroller um, mm. of censorship, mm. and so Salinger's Catcher in the Rye was banned. It's an insidious book. So it that- was it was kind of an extraordinary development that this book, which had kind of already had reasonable circulation and distribution, and had been released in the US several years earlier, appears in a book. A box of books that's on its way to a young man in regional Victoria and the censor plucks Catcher in the Rye out of the box and says, this might have some literary merit, but it's verging on the blasphemous and the language is not suitable and I'm banning it. But that friction then in terms of, on the one hand, trying to develop a voice and at the same time the institution saying, no, you you can't... Uh, express or speak or there are certain limitations to that voice? Well, I think, you know, if you kind of look at history um, through time, uh, you'll see that there are always forces pushing and pulling, one coming in one direction and one going in the other. And I think this kind of characterisation of it is entirely appropriate for the doll and and the, the censorship around Catcher in the Rye. Moving on to another point, food. Oh, food. Glorious food. food. But all of a sudden, the Olympics and the arrival of, or the expected arrival of all these people from around the world poses a little, well, not a little problem, a rather big problem. A huge problem. And there are a couple of things that they tried to do about it. They they had a subcommittee to look after the catering at the Olympic Village in particular. This is an Olympics which will have the highest proportion of Asian countries competing in it. Uh, And they could not find a cook. (laughs) Couldn't find a cook anywhere. So the Games are starting in November. It wasn't until August that they were able... The end of August they were able to secure uh, some 
cooks from shipping lines around the world who could actually turn up in Melbourne and deliver that cuisine. But it speaks to that then that notion of Australia's awareness, not just the world's awareness of Australia, but Australia's awareness of the Oh, rest of absolutely world. true. Yeah, yeah. We were we were struggling to get a concept of of what foreign looked like. And this was one of the interesting things I think that in the in the opening day of the games, the Russian athlete Vladimir Kutz uh, won a gold medal, and uh, Bruce Howard, the photographer who was there, who I interviewed for the book, remembers he remembers being there and how the crowd was so supportive and the surge of applause and admiration for Kutz's achievement. Bruce said to me, he said, the hairs are standing up on the back of my neck just telling you about it. And he said it was a, an extraordinary thing. Uh, I think what we make of that is that here was someone who was from Russia yeah. in the middle of the Cold War, and in fact, he didn't look too much different to the person sitting next to you at the MCG. Well, this then speaks to a much broader um, issue or uh, sensitivity, the awareness of the political framework of the day. We're looking at a period post-World War Two, and then the rise of communism mm. and such like. And so that political... You, you've got a domestic thing, so to speak, in terms of Melbourne, Olympics, what's going on, but there are so many other influences impacting on that. Well, and the, the, the communist um, theme was so large and so dominant, and obviously we're right in the midst of the Cold War. For Australia, the Petrov affair was only two years earlier, so there was a, a, a great sensitivity around all of that. ASIO was basically uh, working around the clock to make sure that especially around the Olympics, who was coming in, who might be interested in staying uh, after the Games and how you would manage that. And, of course, there's, there's all this sense, international sense, bearing down on the Olympics themselves because of the international, broader international situation. Well, it leads to blood in the water. Indeed it does. And, and uh, if there's one motif, I think, that probably sums up the Melbourne Olympics, it's the blood in the water, the water polo match, the famous confrontation between the Hungarian team and the Russians, which of course occurred in the immediate aftermath of uh, the Hungarian uprising, which the Soviets had crushed uh, with such devastating brutality. But it's a, a theme that has played out since then as well. I mean, the, the Olympics in, in Russia were boycotted and, and such like. So it's it's a vehicle for political expression. Well, it is. And the, the thing to remember about Melbourne, which a lot of people forget, is that it was the first Olympics ever affected by political boycotts. So seven countries didn't come. And the majority of those were because of what had happened in Hungary. But China pulled out because of Taiwan's presence. So there were... So this was... Off the, off the bat, this was an Olympics already affected by international tensions. Yeah, I'm just trying to place that in perspective of all the Olympics prior to that, but of course there was the Berlin Olympics and, mm. and, and mm. such like. So mm. you, it, it's been, has it lost it? Well, it's lost its amateur status and it's become a political tool. How much has it become a political tool? Olympic oh, well, now, now or then? Now. Now. now, well, I think now it. I, I, there is an argument that could be made that 56 was in equally pivotal in terms of its its political dimensions. What I think is interesting about, about all of this is that despite all of that, the reputation of the Games itself was as the friendly Games. Yeah. Uh, and that, I think, says a lot about how the, the two weeks of intense competition and general goodwill 
around the games actually suffused um, and and overlaid and triumphed over the political uh, tensions that had preceded it, to the point where the IOC uh, chief executive, Avery Brundage, suggested that he should get the United Nations Peace Medal for for what had occurred in Melbourne. <laughs> Have we lost that? Is it a sense of innocence? Have we lost it? Can we, are we still holding on to that uh, notion of that friendliness in Australia? I, I think it's we're a bit more. We've become more guarded. I mm. think that would be the word I would use. I think uh, perhaps a little more suspicious. Uh, I, I think we're perhaps potentially less welcoming than we were in 1956, mm. and I suppose that in a sense reflects a certain kind of maturity in its way. Perhaps it's not as admirable as that sense of openness that we used to have. Mm. This was the era of television, the introduction Mm. of television in Australia as well. So match those two, the Olympics and television, and in many ways I'm, I'm thinking also geography in terms of the impact television had in communicating or showing Australia to the world. Well, the interesting thing about it was that the there weren't enough sets in TV sets in Australia at the time to actually make make the Olympics a a, a valuable um, tool in terms of that. But it was uh, instrumental in starting conversations between the Olympic organisation and television networks, in particular the ones in the US. So that then created a monster, um, which became a, a, an absolute feature of, of the modern Olympics. Yeah, but was it a, a tool by which Australia could be seen? You know, it wouldn't have been live. Well, but, but certainly there was there was film that was made, and certainly there was a lot of um, a lot of that transmitted overseas, and a lot of it was very much about um, the games themselves. Uh, a lot of the pre-publicity was more about Melbourne and Australia, right. uh, but but in the in the end, the the Olympics were the tight focus yeah. um, of, of the international coverage. Another sort of political ripple around it, Maralinga. Yeah. So in 1950, um, Robert Menzies was approached by the UK Prime Minister Attlee to see if Australia would would host, for want of a better word, uh, UK nuclear tests. By 1956, these had gone from being off the coast of Western Australia into the the dead heart of of Australia at a place called Maralinga. It's interesting when we say the dead heart, but it did actually have a a living culture there. It it had an extraordinary rich Indigenous culture uh, and there were two men who were given the task of identifying how many Aboriginal Australians were there and how to protect them. Again, it speaks to our ignorance, you know, two men to mm. encompass that sort of range of area and such like. It was gross negligence as much as anything else, yeah. I think. But that was the political era of the time. Menzies right. doing his bit for the empire. Quite right, so, yeah. yeah. Did the Olympics help us step away from empire at all? Well, I think it did, very much so. I think it, uh, it gave us a sense of that the rest of the world wasn't too radically different from us, after all, and that maybe maybe we could actually engage with them on an on, in an ongoing way. Now, a last question, because we're going to have to wrap it up. And there are so many others. There's defectors and all sorts of things occurring uh, in this book. It's a fascinating history. Containing it all, 
because it's not just about the Olympics. It's just about so much that was going on at the time. Yeah. So it's, it's hard to do that. But I think the approach I took was to identify several key people who had roles and represented certain social developments and certain things that were going on at the time and their paths coalesce and cross over in Melbourne at the end of 1956. Is there a 1957? Is there a sequel? <laughs> in, other, in, in other words, is there another history you're working on? Uh, look, nothing quite like uh, 1956, David. <laughs> <laughs> I've been talking to Nick Richardson about 1956, but so much more. Uh, the book is entitled 1956, and it's from Scribe. And I was talking with Caroline Miley about her book Artist on Compa- Campaign, which is also available as an e-book. And look for it. Google Artist on Com- Campaign and you'll find Carolyn. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.